Welcome to another episode of Grid Forward Chats, a podcast series with industry leaders on what lies ahead for our electric grid. These podcasts are hosted by Grid Forward Executive Director Bryce Yonker. For today's session, we have Carl Emhoff. Carl is with the National Labs, in particular Pacific Northwest National Labs in central Washington. Carl, thanks for being on with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Bryce. Carl, can you briefly share about your role with PNNL, as the acronym goes, as well as with the Department of Energy? Absolutely. Uh, I lead the, the grid research program at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. PNNL has been involved in uh, grid research since the early 1990s when the West first started experiencing dynamic oscillations in the Western system and had to go to some real-time uh, detection concepts. Uh, and then in uh, 2015, I was the, the founding chair of what's called the Grid Modernization Lab Consortium. And this is a DOE effort uh, around grid modernization at large. They have a, developed a coordinated strategy and asked the lab system to help support them in that. And I uh, coordinate the efforts of 14 laboratories who support DOE's grid modernization. So I know that uh, the labs do a lot and we'll cover probably just scratching the surface on that. Uh, so thanks for letting us know the difference between both PNNL, the DOE labs, GMLC. There's a lot of here, and we'll, we'll uncover that in our conversation today. Um, so today is July 23rd. We're, what, four and a half months officially into our global pandemic uh, lives. Uh, so before we get much further, you know, I'm here in the Portland area and you're in central Washington. How are you? How, how are you uh, making it through all these times? Well, I'm doing fine, and the laboratory is doing well. Uh, we, we have about you know, only about 10 or 15% of our people in the, in the lab. Most of us are working from home, and like you, learning how to use all sorts of different uh, meeting software technologies. And I miss the direct human interaction. Uh, but, you know, everything seems to be going fine. Lots of good engagement with industry and with the DOE sponsors. Good to hear. So as far as PNNL, can you talk briefly at least around the priority areas of the work, you know, what is the the top line areas that the lab is, is working around to advance uh, grid research concepts? The laboratories typically be, uh, have a, a little longer term view, a five to, to 50 year view, looking at issues of national consequence for the nation. So it's a little more early stage kind of research. And PNL, our focus has long been on reliability and resilience of the bulk of the system in general. Uh, and so uh, I, I think our highlights are uh, developing predictive real-time tools to help uh, operators deal with the complexities and, and pace uh, of the system going forward. Uh, we have a very large footprint in grid scale energy storage and some major new and exciting investments going on at the laboratory to help bring energy storage to the stationary uh, grid utility applications. Uh, we are very committed to the whole notion of uh, managing reliability from both sides of the customer meter, the bulk system, uh, and demand response, and therefore the integration of DERs uh, of all types, uh, including renewables, uh, is very important. And how do you manage those at the edge in ways that are reliable and resilient? That's sort of a, a signature of ours. And and lastly, uh, cyber, uh, we have, the, I think, the largest lab effort in grid cyber activities as well. We'll t I jotted five down from that list. We'll talk about all those areas, I believe, in our conversation today. 
It sounded like the work there has been reasonably steady. Uh, we've been surprised in our in our conversations with so many stakeholders around the continuity of their operations. Can you talk a little bit about how maybe pandemic has impacted uh, some of the work there and, and, and where where some of those efforts are maybe coming around after we've been in this for for now four plus months? Well, uh, you know, the, we've seen upsides and downsides. The downsides are we're not able to have as many people in working at the bench in the laboratories. Uh, so for the hard sciences like materials and other things, it, it slowed down some of that fundamental research that is uh, lab uh, dependent. Though a lot of our work in terms of data and, and, and computers and everything else, we're doing just fine. The laboratory did a great job of really boosting our uh, capacity, our digital capacity. So a lot of that analytics work has, has been un, untouched by all of this. Uh, the other thing that we've experienced is we have a lot of engagement with industry on demonstrations of new grid technologies, the Grid Modernization Lab Consortium and other things. And you know, I would say probably half of those utilities have had to slow some of their demonstration activities because they just don't have the human capital in place to handle procurements and oversight of construction projects and other things that are a natural part of demonstration. So I, I think COVID has slowed some of our demonstration with industry, hasn't stopped it, it's just slowed it. Uh, and, I, you know, the third thing we've seen is um, a lot of the utilities have seen impacts on their revenues. So uh, there's a little less of an appetite from the utilities for cost sharing on federal uh, activities. They're still very interested in federal activities, but clearly the the, the, the short-term uh, economic impacts are, are, are you know, important to our utility partners. But, you know, the good side is this is uh, reflected. Uh, much of what we do around resilience is focused on all hazard threats. And what we're finding is that a lot of people are thinking about the codependence of as you deal with the pandemic and then how might you deal with other related uh, threat uh, possibilities like wildfire? How would you handle a hard wildfire season, given the fact that operational staffs are stretched thin because they're sort of compartmentalizing operational staff to avoid cross infection, that sort of thing. So it, it's, it's helped, I think, inform us with some new use cases and concepts around uh, scenarios for resilience that are worth thinking about. So uh, talking maybe a little bit about the national agenda, um, the Trump administration, you know, had the executive order a few weeks back focused on securing bulk power systems and, you know, kind of targeting the supply chain components that are coming from outside countries, maybe outside countries that have um, some sort of a threat factor to the to the uh country at large. Can you talk a bit about the impact this has had uh, in the industry and maybe some of what the next steps may look like? Sure. What what I'll share is the information that DOE has shared uh, with the various industry participants, whether it's vendors or uh, operating utilities. And that is that um, their initial focus is to baseline the, uh, the profile in terms of existing assets in place uh, there's been a lot of outreach to industry because industry obviously had, had some concerns about what does this mean and what do they need to do to kind of respond to it. And, and I think DOE has uh, reassured them that it, it's it's not about pulling hardware out of the system right now so much as it is baselining uh, where some of the threat profiles exist in the current infrastructure. How do they mitigate and monitor some of those uh, items that uh, might be have some vulnerabilities? And then uh, that's kind of step one and then step two, uh, which has not really been unfolded yet, uh, but will be soon, I believe. And, and that is, and so how, how what, what steps would be taken going forward, working with the vendor community and the utilities 
to help harden the supply chain going forward as new assets are procured and put in place, et cetera. So it's a little bit of baseline and where we're at now and how to mitigate that, and then a, a focus in terms of what to do differently going forward on the supply chain. So on funding, as we hop around the national kind of conversation, you know, I think it was just yesterday Senate Republicans were were coming with their own, you know, trillion dollar price stimulus uh, recovery package, um, really focused on near term elements of, of helping individuals across the country and, and businesses across the country. Um, but it seems that generally kind of fundamental research and the works of the labs over over recent times have had strong support. So maybe given the current dynamics that are, you know, very somewhat murky and unclear related to infrastructure, wh- what do you think the direction of support generally looks like for you know, the federal government's role around around innovation and modernization in the energy system and the grid? I think the outlook is good. I think we've seen uh, strong growth and uh, commitment, both from federal budgets as well as uh, strong engagement from industry over the last five years. You know, GMLC at the grid modernization effort at DOE has seen some good budget increases over the last five years. And we had over 200 partners from industry engaging with us uh, in the conduct of the research program over the last five years. And that reflects, I think, stakeholder support. Uh, starting first with DOE. Uh, DOE has, uh, the current administration has supported and actually expanded the scope of the grid, its grid modernization initiative. They just uh, sanctioned an update to that strategy. Uh, the draft was presented to the assistant secretaries at the end of June. And I think that will be rolling out to uh, industry and some of the congressional stakeholders here going forward. And Congress, has, we've had strong bipartisan support uh, for the coordinated grid modernization strategy with DOE. Uh, and again, I, lastly, from the standpoint of industry, we, as we talk to our partners who've been uh, with us going forward, they're very interested in, in building upon uh, the success of the last five years. So I, I think the prospects are good. What happens in stimulus versus regular uh, appropriations kind of remains to be seen. That's, you know, I, I can't read those tea leaves. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic there will be continued strong support. So what are some of the focus areas, you know, of the national agenda of DOE and the labs, you know, potentially impacted some by the health and economic crisis and situation that's unfolding, but really just given the general trajectory of, of the administration and the agencies, what, what are kind of the leading focus areas that are kind of at the, at the top of the list that are, that are working to be addressed right now? Well, that, that's a that's a long list, and I'm going to make you setting me up to make somebody mad that I don't mention their their, their special interest. <laughs> uh, but, but but I think at the top of the list, you know, from from the federal perspective, it's uh, all about resilience, and that's really resilience across all threats, all hazards. Uh, there are some that are higher sense of urgency than others, but I think that resilience and it's kind of that's it's different from reliability, but it's strongly related to reliability. So. A, a second top priority from the federal and industry perspective is the issue around cyber resilience, which is a subset of that uh, resilience um, profile. Uh, and they've made substantial uh, progress, uh, both in industry and from the federal side, in terms of enhancing the cyber resilience approaches. A, an emerging new priority from DUE is the Energy Storage Grand Challenge. And I think this is a reflection that a critical element of both 
resilience as well as regional aspirations around future energy mix goals is this whole notion of having a system that's flexible enough to be resilient on blue sky days and dark sky days, but also accommodate whatever energy of future emerges at the regional level. So this, this pursuit of flexibility, that flexibility is becoming kind of the key coin of the realm. And I think it's woven into, intimately throughout all of the, uh, the conversations around resilience and future uh, grid architectures and that sort of thing. And, and then the, the last piece I think that is really kind of exciting is the, is the whole notion of grid integration. Uh, and that's this explosion of innovation at the grid edge predominantly. And I think the simple way of characterizing that is it's a move towards inverter-based resources, whether it's storage or um, renewable generation or uh, fuel cell generation or other things. Uh, we're going to have an, an immense increase in our reliance on inverter-based resources. And we need to think about how do we leverage and coordinate that at, the, at scale, at the full population interconnection scale, not just device by device by device. And so there, there's a phenomenal interest in terms of how, how do we embrace this inverter-based resource future in ways that enhance flexibility and resilience. And those are all on the applied side. I'll just quickly speak to the, the more of the fundamental side. Uh, there are several really compelling uh, grid um, applications in exascale computing, which is DOE's sort of next step in high-performance computing, maintaining our national leadership in high-performance computing. And those really are how do we design more effectively more inherently resilient systems that can handle uh, really uh, likely scenarios of 20 and 40 years out. Analytics from artificial intelligence has really gotten a boost, uh, and the grid is a great example where you have very large, very high-velocity data streams where AI can add a lot of value. And then undergirding all of this is uh, DOE's the largest investor in fundamental research and materials. And we need materials, whether it's for power electronics, whether it's for energy storage, whether it's for advanced conductors. So those, I think, those six areas are really, I think, the big drivers in the federal agenda. And we're going to dive right in on on resiliency, you know, related to things like wildfire, things like storms across the country, you know, uh, a handful of years back, you know, the Cascadia subduction earthquake zone got a lot of, uh, of attention here west of the Cascades. Uh, as you had mentioned, cyber. Uh, now here more recently, how grid operators manage their systems through a pandemic. So, you know, the topic uh, is certainly very active. Can you talk a bit about the work and priorities at PNNL in particular and at the labs to support the industry on these topics? Yeah, so at, at PNL, uh, resilience uh, is first and foremost centered around our work for the DOE effort on the North American Energy System Resilience Model. It's called NARM. And uh, it's, a, it's a priority of DOE, the Office of Electricity, and the ERE are the, are the primary drivers there. And PNL has a, a major leadership role in the real-time tools portion of that for grid modeling. Uh, and then we we're working with uh, two or three other laboratories kind of leading uh, that space. Uh, and a couple uh, examples kind of jump out. One, some really uh, important advancements have been made in extreme event uh, modeling. Uh, such that we can look at much more complex outage scenarios, uh, look at all the interdependencies with the underlying protection system and, and market structures and other things. It's enabled by high-performance computing 
So we can basically uh, provide much more thoughtful consideration of extreme events and how we need to design a system to be robust in the face of those extreme events. And we're in the process now, we've done some major demonstrations of it and the ERCOP footprint. We're working with vendors to make it available in the, in the uh, modeling tools that are uh, pervasive in the Western interconnection. Uh, and so it's, it's moving into becoming sort of a national asset. It's called dynamic contingency analysis. So that, that I think is very important in terms of helping plan. Uh, the second item I, I would share would be uh, providing contingency analysis then in real time that operators can utilize. You know, take the West, for instance, say you might have a summer situation, heavy heavy flows or put a little bit of stress on certain portions of the Western system, and then you get a, a wildfire that begins to emerge. Historically, it would take us uh, 24 to 36 hours to run the contingencies across the Western interconnection, look at high N minus two kind of situations. Uh, we've parallelized a lot of that work. We've done some of the early work and parallelization of these grid tools. And that's now down to about one minute. So it's damn near a real-time tool that's available for Western operators watching, uh, security coordinators watching the Western system, where you know they have the capacity uh, to, to look at a much faster contingency analysis uh, considerations for the Western system, or any system for that matter. And, and the third piece that kind of links into this is the growing importance of interdependencies. Uh, interdependencies with... Uh, the grid system uh, and how dependent it is now on communications, much more so than it was 10 years ago, much more dependent upon uh, fuel supply from natural gas pipelines and, and what interruptions there might, what impact that might have, particularly as we have changes in the fuel mix on the system. I, you know, this past spring, I think coal generation in the U.S. dipped below 25 percent uh, for a month or two. And so, you know, it, it's been some big transitions in the fuel mix. So interdependencies is going to be more important both in planning as well as real-time operations. And that's a big part of the NARM effort. Another piece of resilience is energy storage, grid-scale storage. Uh, it is a great source of flexibility for going up or going down in terms of uh, balancing out the system for whatever reasons, whether it's renewables or other uh, normal operational requirements. Uh, we have a large uh, materials effort uh, there to develop next generation technologies that reduce our vulnerability or dependence on uh, exotic uh, metals. So we're working hard to drive the price points down, even for that $100 to $120 per kWh installed. And DOE just announced the uh, plan to build a grid storage launch pad at PNNL, which will have very close linkage to industry to validate and accelerate the development of, of storage systems that meet the use cases that utilities think not only do they need today, but what might they need five and 10 years from now? What sort of balance of plant uh, use cases for and levels of reliability do they need from these energy storage devices going forward? That, that's a really big investment of ours. Uh, grid architecture is uh, some work that Jeff Taft here at the laboratory has uh, led for DOE, looking at sort of new um, models, new business models and new interdependency models as the grid moves with the big explosion at the grid edge. Uh, and it's, it's given us a nice common uh, vernacular to work with industry, 26 state regulatory bodies and others to think about what's going to be different about the future distribution system. What opportunities does it provide in terms of making it more resilient more, or more robust, et cetera. And then lastly, on the cyber side, I mentioned we do a good bit of work uh, on cyber uh, activities with the utilities. Historically, that's been mainly focused on the Internet side of activities, and we're now adding more and more look at the control system, the operational side, and you need both situational awareness and the ability to respond and defend 
both for IT and OT. And so that's, I think, a, a major emphasis on the work we're doing, and that, that's driven in large part by DOE's priorities. Could I ask you a follow-on around some of the work coming from the, the lab there and the national lab uh, body around wildfires? Um, I, I've seen some really interesting advanced um, work that, that seems like it's right at the cusp of being able to be commercially used more. So, so can you talk a little bit about the, the work around wildfire risk? Sure. I'll talk about PNL and a few of the other laboratories as well. Uh, and uh, EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, has been working with DOE uh, and uh, the utilities uh, to help identify some quick uh, opportunities to leverage lab uh, innovations to help with not only this current upcoming wildfire season, but the, uh, those in the next two or three years, so helping provide some near-term support. Uh, and a number of things have kind of emerged. P- PNL has, has developed a lot of analytics for damage assessment. Uh, based upon satellite imagery and, and drone imagery that initially was focused mainly on major storms like hurricanes and other things. We're working with the White House task force now to help extend that into wildfire applications and then entails uh, artificial intelligence mainly to do the very fast analytics off uh, these images so that you can give people uh, an understanding of the damage and flame fronts, etc., as well as drought stress and uh, vegetation cover uh, in real time and through smoke cover. So uh, it's, it, it gives the emergency responders and utility operators much more precise data on where to de-energize the system, how to optimize their, their minimizing the risk profiles and helping emergency response. Uh, some other laboratories are, are working with some Western utilities on advanced sensing that would detect arcing or, or sparks that would come off of the system. They're leveraging very high-speed uh, sensing technologies like facial measurement units uh, to uh, detect uh, signatures that indicate arcing so that utilities will be able to pay close attention and crews out to look for areas where there appear to be arcing that's occurring. Uh, and EEI is working with uh, various utilities, uh, mainly in the West, but around the country as well, to, to do some demonstrations of these uh, and try to put them in place to help with the situation. Yeah, and I think you were telling me about some technology that had awareness of when a line may have an issue or be falling, and you could de-energize it fast enough before it even hit the ground. So it sounds like the speed at which the visibility is coming onto the system is is increasing almost exponentially. Well, yeah, that's being validated and tested in Southern California right now. But what that's linked to from a federal standpoint is the, is the push for enhanced system observability. You know, the face measurement uh, effort that DOE uh, sort of triggered about 15 years ago has really helped accelerate the use of these high-resolution sensing tools. And it's upon that uh, sensing platform that uh, vendors like Schweitzer Engineering and others are working with Southern Cal Edison, San Diego, and others to help leverage those innovations that were initially put in place for different reasons, but now they're finding good, good application and value for some of the wildfire activities. Pardon this quick interruption. Do you like the in-depth interviews on Grid Forward Chats? Subscribe to our channel on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Podbean apps. That way, you don't miss a single chat. And learn more about Grid Forward at gridforward.org. Now, back to the show. As you maybe think three, five years ago, 
are are we now at a better place to build stronger, more adaptable systems? And kind of from a technical standpoint, if that toolkit is more robust, what are the things that are kind of slowing down the adoption of, of the various solutions out there? Well, so I'll take you back to the 2003 outage. At that time, we uh, in the in the post event analysis by NERC, they found out if they had had phaser measurement units in the Eastern Interconnection, uh, they would have had an hour and a half warning that Cleveland was getting ready to pull away. At the time, we said, wouldn't it be great if we had 300 network PMUs across the country? Well, today we have almost 2,500 network PMUs across the country, and we're now moving into even a, ne- a higher level of resolution and speed beyond that uh, to, to look at some critical infrastructure. So we've made phenomenal progress on being able to see the bulk system. Uh, in parallel, uh, the uh, ARRA efforts back in 2008, 2010, put a major uh, acceleration in terms of the use of distribution automation uh, and smart metering to where now it's smart meters, I think we're up to about 75 or 80% penetration. So I think we as a nation have much greater capacity for observability and response uh, in many ways that will help us. And, you know, the challenge is kind of learning that pace, how to go forward. Uh, I think in terms of energy storage, those price points are really coming down. And I I think the day of much greater penetration is much closer than than we realized even just a few years ago. So I think we made a lot of progress. And I think the big barrier price is um, we continue to find that the uh, particularly for investor owned utilities uh, who require uh, state utility commissions, it's. The struggle is it's hard for the commissioners to have the data and the tools to understand and keep pace with the rate of change in, in all this technology. Uh, and, you know, their, their budgets were hit hard during the last recession, uh, and they're going to get hit hard again during the COVID situation. So I think we need to think about how do we keep the progress going for those utilities that rely on utility commissions to have the right data and the tools so they can kind of work with the utilities to make the good investments in grid modernization. Now, consumer-owned utilities, uh, it's a totally different model. Uh, But again, the consumer-owned utilities are going to, you know, mostly smaller utilities, and they're going to be hit hard by the economic status that we're going through right now as well. So helping the decision makers have the data and the tools to help keep pace with the uh, rate of modernization is important, Uh, particularly if there are some stimulus investments that come out that relate to grid modernization. That's going to be a real stress point in terms of picking what are the right things to be doing. So changing gears a little bit, uh, wanted to ask kind of a broad question around kind of applying the advanced research that that you guys are working on, that the labs are working on. Um, I know that there can be some some friction, you know, bringing those uh, lessons into a commercial environment. Um, h- how do you guys help bridge the gap uh, between the vast body of, of research and resources and, and bringing those into the marketplace? They're the, the traditional approaches, which are kind of at arm's distance, which is you you, you capture intellectual property uh, so that commercial vendors can actually protect uh, their investments as they try to, to leverage some of that IP and take it out into commercial practice. Uh, they need some, some degrees of protection. Uh, the challenge there is getting the word out to everybody. Uh, and so it, it, there's a certain pace at which that moves, and it's, just, it's kind of a slow pace. What I found most exciting is uh, in the public-private partnerships that DOE has encouraged on the grid modernization efforts, the over 200 external partners. Um, each of those projects has an advisory group, 
and industry can participate on an advisory group, whether they're cost sharing or not. They don't have to be putting money in the game to be able to advise and sort of monitor progress, et cetera. Uh, and so that that has, I think, been a big boon to improve real-time awareness of what innovation is being is going on, what sort of successes or results are, are being found in some of the early trials and demonstrations. And that we found that really beneficial in two areas. One, it helps us redirect uh, and reprioritize in, in flight the project. So we end up with a higher quality project. And then number two, you, you have a sort of a built-in group of vendors and utility customers who have, have seen things and are, can get excited about it. Uh, so that, that I think is really important. And, and secondly, DOE uh, over the last two years uh, through their XLAB uh, outreach uh, conferences like we had in Seattle last year on, on GRID is really tr working hard to help the, the uh, industry understand how best to engage the, the, the lab system to get innovation out quickly. They've, they've really focused hard on doing that. Uh, and I think that's uh, uh, been a big boon uh, to, to help increase the pace at which they pick up some of these new concepts. But the last thing I'll mention, uh, huge transition in the industry. Five and 10 years ago, industry said, we don't want to use any open source platforms. It's too hard, too risky. We can't protect the IP, et cetera. That's really changed. The you know, industry uh, is, is really looking now for how can they better leverage open source platforms to increase the pace uh, and, 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 ultimately kind of reduce the price, the cost of engaging some of these new integration technologies. So that's always been a, a policy of ours is to work on open source platforms to get to accelerate the innovation process. And I think that's being embraced by industry now and should speed things up. Carl, you had mentioned that the on the fundamental side of the work there, elements around analytics were in that portfolio. And I know that in the industry, that means a lot right now, and it means a lot there at the lab. Can you talk a little bit about some of those uh, areas of work uh, and kind of in practice what, what they're meaning? A couple things we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, first, uh, we are working with RPE to build some data repositories that provide some of the unique uh, data that so many innovators have a hard time getting access to. We protect it behind our, our, our multiple firewalls at the laboratory. In some cases, we anonymize that data. But we've actually now, now running competitions, things like PowerFlow solvers, uh, where uh, then 10 to 15 awarded uh, participants can try to improve uh, PowerFlow algorithms, if you will. And in some cases, uh, the improvements that have been shown, they, they could save some of the large uh, system operators, you know, billions of dollars a year just to improve market operations uh, based upon these improved solvers. So what one approach is using data repositories and then having structured competitions or tailored access to those repositories so that innovators can have the data they need to really make some dramatic progress on, on important tools. So that's one piece of it. The second piece is uh, we're, we're working with uh, utilities uh, on roles that where artificial intelligence can really improve important functions. One, one example is transitioning from rigid remedial action schemes, which they use in the West uh, to, to handle kind of extreme event emergencies and moving towards adaptive uh, remedial action schemes. And we're working with uh, some utilities in, in the West uh, to look at how AI can help um, create adaptive remedial action schemes that would be optimal based upon the current situation uh, and enable them to uh, uh, 
have less negative impact on a system and shorten the time of, a, of an emergency, if you will, uh, and restore the system to full operation very quickly. And uh, some of the oper operating utilities have been found it to be very promising and are now moving forward to help implement some of these activities. And it's really enabled by uh, the high resolution data that uh, the uh, utilities put, put in place uh, over the last five or 10 years and some of the new artificial intelligence tools that have emerged over the last two to three years. So we're matching new algorithms to the enhanced data streams and really delivering some uh, fascinating uh, results. At times you hear or, or there, you know, certain organizations think that tackling, you know, difficult challenges or going kind of at the front of the pack with innovation, you know, maybe a, an effort for, you know, the big players, whether these are federal agencies or large investor owned utilities or major industrial um, companies. How do you see the smaller organizations, maybe the publicly owned utilities or more nimble providers or, or grassroots sorts of organizations? How do you see those types of stakeholders being able to to play and take on effective roles in this transition? Well, great question. The small publics uh, for decades have shown an amazing level of innovation and speed just because some of their decision processes are much more local and they can make a local decision and move forward on demand response and other things. Uh, they also, uh, like the large utilities, uh, are good at understanding when they should team up and coordinate NRECA that represents the, the co-ops and APPA, which represents the publics. Uh, they've done some really good things where they'll, they'll gather their, their, their members into a, a common research agenda, much like EPRI does predominantly for IOUs, but they have some large publics and, and, and co-ops in, in EPRI as well. So, so a pre-final question. Um, you've mentioned storage a couple times, Carl, and I know the Grand Challenge is kind of an exciting in-flight effort right now. I think many have thought of storage as, as somewhat of, the, of a holy grail um, to provide additional system flexibility uh, with dynamics uh, that are really shifting on the system. So can you talk a bit about, you know, the prioritization at the lab uh, around that area and, and what's in motion right now? Sure. Uh, at at PNL, our focus is predominantly on battery systems for uh, stationary storage and for vehicle transportation storage. We sort of work on kind of both sides of that uh, agenda. Um, and on the stationary storage side, to get the cost down to the $100 $120 per kWh installed, we're looking to go to earth abundant materials like organics and other things. Uh, to help drive those price points down. And we're on track for sort of meeting our OMB milestones going forward. And I think the real key now is being able to validate the ability of those storage systems, including the balance of plant, to have the levels of reliability and cyclability that the utilities need for the use cases. And step one right now is working with the utilities to really define what are those six or eight most important use cases that we need to be using to validate a lot of these new technologies against. Um, the, uh, I think the other piece is storage includes things beyond batteries. It includes you know, the, the inherent uh, responsiveness and thermal thermal storage in, in buildings, which use 70% of our electricity in the United States, uh, and other, other sources of storage, whether it's pumped hydro and other things. So the DOE fence line around the grand challenge is all types of storage. And I think one of the, the critical elements there 
is to be able to look at the energy services that are provided by storage, regardless of the color or flavor of storage, and have a common ability to validate the delivery of those energy services. Because I mentioned earlier, flexibility is going to be the coin of the realm going forward. Energy storage fundamentally provides that flexibility, but people have to be able to depend on it, whether it's coming from the thermal mass in a building, a small pumped hydro, or these new organic earth abundant material stationary systems. We need that common ability to compare and contrast so utilities can make investments and know they're going to get what they're paying for. Uh, and that, that I think, is the grand challenge in front of us, and DOE is gearing up a, an integrated strategy to do that. They will provide some innovation on the material side, uh, but industry and others are going to be big players in that as well. So I think that is a, a really important issue because for the next 30 to 50 years, we're going to have to learn how to get system flexibility from every source under every single rock uh, out there uh, as we move forward in these uh, challenging times. Well, well, Carl, I've got one last question. You know, What are you excited to see progressing positively in the marketplace right now? Uh, what, what really kind of is, is an is a unexpected surprise around where you're seeing good, good momentum and good motion? And, and on somewhat of a flip side of that, um, you know, what do you think is some, some especially meaningful and impactful work there at the labs that can get uh, applied really in the short term here? So I, I think there's a phenomenal interest in grid integration a lot of a lot of the new devices that are emerging, whether it's small devices on the customer side of the meter or mid-sized devices at the distribution system level. Uh, and there are a number of states that are looking at how, how do we engage those devices in the distribution business model, the distribution system operator concept a lot of people are kind of looking at and exploring. So I, I think the phenomenal opportunity in looking at how do we extract flexibility out of these DER resources on a common basis. That's for control. It's for observability. It's for recovery during dark sky days. Uh, and uh, the architecture gives us a common systematic system architecture where it gives us a common vernacular or, or approach, a systematic approach for looking at how these new kind of grid designs are going to operate going forward. That helps the regulators and others figure out what data that they need and what models can they use to help try out, look at new communications devices, new control approaches, new ways of handling inertia uh, with uh, inverter-based resources. Uh, I think that is the most exciting kind of Wild West space. And there's some sense of urgency there, obviously, to, to meet some of the policy goals around the country. People have to find ways of extracting flexibility. Uh, and the, the, the bulk system has to be able to see underneath itself to down to the distribution system and vice versa. That boundary layer between transmission and distribution is disappearing. So I think that whole space in terms of grid integration, how do you control it? How do you assure uh, reliability and resilience is very exciting. Uh, and it's going to leverage energy storage. It's going to leverage system observability. It's going to leverage real-time tools. All of the above are going to fit into that. And I think that's uh, just a fantastic uh, space for public-private partnerships, uh, labs and, and utilities working together going forward. Well, Carl, thank you for being on with us. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, you're, you're such a great resource at the federal level uh, and, and here in the region. And we appreciate your service and all the expertise that, uh, that you offer to the industry. It's my pleasure, Bryce. And I'd like to thank Grid Forward for all that you do for helping bring the industry and the innovation community together. You guys do a great job. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Grid Forward Chats, our podcast series with industry leaders on what's driving grid modernization ahead. Check out our website at gridforward.org to learn more about our podcasts, virtual events, becoming a member, and our mission to promote grid innovation and accelerate modernization across our region.